It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thursday, October 22, 2020. On today's special Encore presentation, the Code St. Luke Public Library's Stephen Tomlinson is here to talk about the life and career of Marlon Brando. Here's Stephen. Hello, everyone. This is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today I will be talking about another of the most legendary of Hollywood actors, Marlon Brando. You know, throughout the history of the movies, there have been only a handful of people who have really reconfigured the way we think about the medium. Certainly, Brando is one of them. But his legacy, you know, is a complicated thing. Today, I think that legacy is less complicated than it was at the time of his death in 2004, when the iconic, fresh-faced firebrand of the late 40s and early 50s was mixed up in the collective imagination with the old, overweight curmudgeon of his late career and private life. But no amount of rumor, scandal, and poor career choices can discredit that influence. The realism that he helped introduce to the movies, his cool naturalism especially, did nothing less than help change the course of film acting forever. Marlon Brando, if not quite single-handedly, certainly helped transform film acting into something that we would today recognize as contemporary and very modern. Something more naturalistic and psychologically real than what had come before him. After Brando, to merely represent the human experience on stage would soon be perceived as false. And only the actor or actress that strove to be his or her own character, in film especially, to go through an actual emotional experience, only that would be considered, at least in some crucial sense, as legitimate. Even those actors that chose not to engage in the Stanislavski-based method of psychological realism initiated by New York's group theater in the 1930s, even they had eventually to adjust their representational style to fit this new perception of dramatic reality. Basically, after Brando, every actor had to dig a lot deeper to be taken seriously as a dramatic performer. Brando was born in Omaha, Nebraska in 1924. The name may sound vaguely Latin, but his ancestry is mostly a combination of Irish and German and a few other things as well, I think. His mother, known as Dodie, was certainly unconventional for her time. She smoked, wore trousers, and drove cars. An actress herself, and even a theater administrator, she had helped Henry Fonda, for one, another native Nebraskan, begin his acting career. However, she was also an alcoholic and often had to be brought home from bars by her husband, himself a rather mean-spirited and violent man. In Brando's autobiography, Songs My Mother Taught Me, he expressed sadness when writing about her. The anguish that her drinking produced was that she preferred getting drunk to caring for us, he wrote. But Brando harbored far more dislike for his father, writing, I was his namesake, but nothing I ever did pleased or even interested him. He enjoyed telling me 
that I wouldn't amount to anything. And he had a habit of saying, I couldn't do anything right. You know, I'd have been better off in an orphanage, he wrote. Stephen Riley, the filmmaker behind the 2015 biographical documentary, Listen to Me, Marlon, has written, all clues lead back to his childhood. Brando himself would ruefully recite the Jesuit motto, give me a child until he is seven and I will give you the man. He then defined his life's mission as one to resolve the bad habits and behaviors picked up during his formative years. Riley goes on to say, acting became a survival tool. From his desperate attempts to revive his mother from her drunken stupors, the young Brando developed a knack for skits and role play. His skill in mimicry and mastering of accents, they were tools to gain the attention of his father, informed by an early instinct that other people like to see reflections of themselves. Riley also quotes Brando as saying, when you are as a child unwanted, you look for an identity that will be acceptable, quote unquote. Brando, he, he certainly was a wayward, troubled youth and even a dyslexic high school dropout who decided to follow his two sisters to New York. His sister Jocelyn recalled once that he had been in a school play in Nebraska and enjoyed it very much. So he decided he would go to New York and study acting because that was the only thing that he really, truly enjoyed. That was when Brando was 18 years old. Um, he had felt a degree of acceptance in that school play in Nebraska. It was a place where he wasn't criticized, where he was valued. And it was the first time in his life, I think, that he heard good things about himself. But arriving the following year in 1943, the still troubled Brando initially slept on the streets of New York City. Brando had already been an acute observer of human behavior. And so wandering the streets of New York provided a further opportunity to do so. And he did. He studied people uh, from bankers to longshoremen to hobos and other street people. And at some point, he joined the nurturing environment of Stella Adler's acting class. And from Adler, he learned the techniques of the Stanislavski system, which encouraged the performer to draw upon his or her own memories and experiences to create a more realistic and naturalistic portrayal. You know, I think it may be safe to say that because of his vast reservoir of past emotion, which must have ran deeper than most, that he proved a quite precocious student. Brando was a hit from the start. No doubt his exceptional good looks helped too. But in any case, the Adler family virtually adopted him overnight. He even sat at the table of their West 54th Street apartment, picking up Yiddish, believe it or not, as well as an informal education in the social and political causes of the time, before first making it to Broadway in 1944 in I Remember Mama. 1944. Extraordinary. That's just a little more than a year after he arrived in the city 
completely penniless. In Songs My Mother Taught Me, his um, 1994 memoir, um, which Brando wrote with uh, a former New York Times reporter named Robert Lindsay, Brando describes a about this world with the Adlers, uh, fast forming one of mostly Jewish friends who introduced him to books and ideas that he had no idea existed. And that he he stayed up all night with the Adlers and his other friends, you know, asking questions, arguing, probing. From overseas, news of both the Holocaust and the growing need for Israeli statehood had great impact on the Adler family. And on Brando, too. In 1947, shortly before his explosive fame on Broadway in A Streetcar Named Desire, he played the lead role of David, a young concentration camp survivor, in A Flag is Born, a theatrical production written by Ben Hecht, best known as a Hollywood screenwriter, and a great one, too, to raise money to free Palestine from the British and create an Israeli state. A Flag is Born was directed by Luther Adler, and everyone in the cast, including Paul Muni and Celia Adler, was Jewish, except Brando, who was then 23 years old. So Brando's intimacy with the Jewish struggle became part, I think, of a universal view that he would express, often controversially, about human rights, especially in the years to come and at the height of his stardom in the 1960s and beyond. It was, of course, in the Broadway production of A Streetcar Named Desire in 1948 with Jessica Tandy as Blanche Dubois that Brando first made his name in a big way. His electrifying stage performance in Streetcar would be the very reenactment of his own traumatic childhood memories of his father. In fact, Brando said that channeling his father's violence every night for the performance nearly led him to a nervous breakdown. And years afterwards, he said, what I remember most about A Streetcar Named Desire was the emotional grind of acting in it six nights and two afternoons a week. Try to imagine what it was like walking on stage at 8.30 every night, having to yell, scream, cry, break dishes, kick the furniture, punch the walls, and experience the same intense, wrenching emotions night after night. Trying each time to evoke in audiences, the same emotions that I felt. It was exhausting, quote unquote. But it worked. And Brando's animalistic, sexualized, fearless approach seemingly burned its way into the audience's psyche like no other actor had before or since. For its two-year run, Streetcar was a sellout sensation until Brando's sudden abandonment of Broadway for Hollywood, never to return to the stage again. I guess it must truly have exhausted him. For his first role in Hollywood, Brando played an embittered paraplegic World War II veteran in the Stanley Kramer-produced movie, The Men. A method actor to the core, he is supposed to have spent up to a month in bed at the Birmingham Army Hospital in preparation for that role. By Brando's own account, it may have been because of this film that his draft status was changed from 4F to 1A. 
meaning he was now eligible to be drafted. He had tried to join the army before moving to New York, but was refused induction because of a football injury. What happened apparently is that he had had surgery on his trick knee and it was no longer physically debilitating enough to incur exclusion from the draft. So when Brando reported to the induction center, he answered a questionnaire by saying his race was, and I quote here, human, and that his color was seasonal oyster white to beige, quote unquote. And he told an army doctor that he was psychoneurotic. When the draft board referred him to a psychiatrist because of this, Brando explained that he had been expelled from army school, military school, and also that he had a severe problem with authority. But whatever the reason, Brando avoided military service during the Korean War. The following year, in 1951, he brought his performance as the British Stanley Kowalski to the screen in a highly successful adaptation of A Streetcar Named Desire, this time with Vivian Lee, of course, as Blanche Dubois. The, the performance, I think, is justly regarded as one of Brando's very greatest in the movies, perhaps equaled only three years later by his role of Terry Malloy in On the Waterfront. In fact, the popular reception of his performance in Streetcar was so positive that Brando quickly became a sex symbol, despite the character being a highly unsympathetic one. And the role earned him his first Academy Award nomination for Best Actor, though he lost to Humphrey Bogart in The African Queen. The camera, the camera loved Marlon Brando. It still does. Um, when we watch his films today, uh, his, his charisma is palpable. He, he was certainly one of the best looking men in movie history too, soon to be every bit an icon of the 1950s as the abstract art that he had begun to collect. Both things being, I think, very confident and vivid symbols of mid-century American modernity. You know, a little known fact about Brando's acting is that early in his career, he began using cue cards instead of memorizing his lines. Did you know that? He later claimed that this helped bring realism and spontaneity to his performances. However, some thought Brando used the cards out of laziness or an inability to memorize. Once, 20 years later, on the set of The Godfather, Brando was asked why he wanted his lines printed out. He responded, because I can read them that way. He was superb again in 1953's adaptation of Julius Caesar. This is you know, one of my favorite Brando performances. Certainly it's not as well known as those in Streetcar and On the Waterfront, uh, among others. But uh, he's really fantastic in it. Um, you know, I think while most observers were quick to acknowledge his talent, certainly in that era, some critics felt his mumbling, as they called it, and other idiosyncrasies betrayed a lack of acting fundamentals. And so when his casting as Mark Anthony was announced, many remained dubious about his prospects for success, not least among them, Brando himself, who was quoted as saying he was embarrassed to be acting alongside actual Shakespearean actors, 
such as Sir John Gielgud, James Mason, and John Houseman. But Brando's performance is so flawless in the film that Gielgud himself would later say in interviews that he thought Brando's Anthony was the best he'd ever seen. And for years afterwards, both he and Hausman would pursue Brando to tackle a stage production of Hamlet. You know, it's really a shame that that, that never worked out because uh, just imagine it, Brando as Hamlet. I mean, the casting, the casting is or would have been absolutely perfect, I think. You know, about that performance in Julius Caesar, a future director of Brando, John Huston, commented, Upon seeing it, Christ, it was like a furnace door opening. And the heat that came off the screen, I don't know any other actor who could do that, he said. Brando's turn as Mark Anthony would also put to rest any notions that his acting was mere mumbling gimmickry and certainly would help spread both his and the Stanislavski-based approach to the craft beyond America itself. And in doing so, directly challenge the English-based representational style, which focused more on the formal aspects of voice and movement when it came to acting. Indeed, non-American actors, um, as notable as Christopher Plummer and Anthony Hopkins, have cited Brando's Mark Anthony as a turning point, a turning point whereby they and other more Tradition-based actors sought to combine the technically proficient English representational style with the more emotionally rich, inside-out approach of the Stanislavski system. For Julius Caesar, Brando was again nominated for a Best Actor Oscar, but lost, at least to my mind, somewhat unbelievably to William Holden in Stalag 17. Perhaps because in Stalag 17, the film is really centered around the character of Holden, whereas, of course, Julius Caesar itself is more of a ensemble piece. That same year as Julius Caesar, 1953, Brando also starred in The Wild One. And though it does not really stand today as one of his best films, it certainly was, in retrospect, one of his most iconic roles in the film as the emotionally wounded biker gang leader, Johnny Boy. Um, in some senses, it's a really dated representation, perhaps because in part it proved so influential and was so much imitated afterwards that it really appears as a kind of cliche when watching it today, although there really had been nothing like it um, um, before then. So, you know, it's it there really is no denying the cultural importance of this movie. However, however much it does not stand the test of time. It certainly had then cemented Brando as a pop culture icon for the ages. And so when someone once said that Brando was rock and roll before anybody knew what rock and roll was, it is this role in The Wild One particularly that that comment refers to. With his leather jacket, t-shirt and blue jeans appearance, and his mercurial menace, Brando would visually manifest this new post-World War II meaning of 
the word cool. While inspiring future stars like James Dean, as well as the first generation of rock and roll stars themselves, beginning with Elvis Presley himself. And, you know, incidentally, that was his own motorcycle that he rode in the film. But it wouldn't be until his next movie that the perfect marriage of script, actor, and director would bring Marlon Brando's talent to its fullest fruition. On the Waterfront in 1954, which is unquestionably one of the great screen performances of all time. In fact, many regard it still as the benchmark for what film acting can be. Winner of eight Academy Awards, including Best Actor for Brando, this tale of mob corruption on the shipping docks of Hoboken, Hoboken, New Jersey, and the one man who had the guts and tortured consciousness to do the right thing is perhaps as powerful a film as has ever been produced by a major Hollywood studio. There are many extraordinary moments in the movie. One such is when Eva Marie Saints, Edie, walks with Brando's longshoreman Terry Malloy through a park. And as they walk and talk, getting to know one another, Eva Marie Saint accidentally drops a glove. And in a brilliantly improvised moment, Brando picks up her glove. But instead of returning it to her, he sensuously, playfully tries to fit it on one of his hands as they effortlessly continue their talk. One of awkward, blossoming flirtation. And not an ounce of extra attention is made of it. It just happens, unplanned, in the moment, real behavior within an imaginary circumstance. You know, controversy ensues to this day as to whether On the Waterfront was meant by the film's director, Elia Kazan, and screenwriter, Bud Schulberg, as an allegory in defense of their own positions in testifying to the U.S. Government House Un-American Activities Committee by naming names in the communist witch hunts of the early 1950s during the dark days of McCarthyism. Kazan had informed on eight former colleagues from the group theater troupe in New York, who, like Kazan, had once been members of the Communist Party. The writer Clifford Odets was probably the most notable among those that he named. And of course, in doing so, they were unable to work for years afterwards, at least under their own names. And so for this reason, Brando had initially turned down on the waterfront because Kazan had testified, name names. But he changed his mind after producer Sam Spiegel convinced him to put his politics aside and do the movie. None of us is perfect, Brando later wrote in his memoir, and I think that Kazan has done injury to others, but mostly injury to himself. Brando did win his first of two Oscars for his performance in On the Waterfront. He would receive a total of eight nominations throughout his career. You know, for the famous I Could Have Been a Contender scene in On the Waterfront, Brando convinced Kazan to allow him to improvise much of the dialogue. 
Kazan said about it. What was extraordinary about his performance here, I feel, is that the contrast of the tough guy front and the extreme delicacy and gentle cast of his behavior. What other actor, when his brother draws a pistol to force him to do something shameful, would put his hand on the gun and push it away with the gentleness of a caress? Who else could read, Oh, Charlie, in a tone of reproach that is so loving and so melancholy and suggests the terrific depth of pain? If there is a better performance by a man in the history of movies in America, I don't know what it is said Kazan, quote-unquote. If Brando had died then and there in 1955, instead of, say, James Dean, his reputation would be pristine today. He had an Oscar for On the Waterfront, his last of four nominations in a row, including, though I had neglected to mention it, for Viva Zapata in 1952, he had created the mythic archetype of the inarticulate solitude capitalized upon by Dean himself and just about every rock singer to come, especially in the 1960s and 70s. He was beautiful still and uncompromising. He had deep reservoir of feeling that he could transmit to the screen in the most charismatic and moving of manner. What couldn't he do? You know, in retrospect, it is now easy to see On the Waterfront as the apex of his career. And while Brando would always remain a top box office draw, critics would also come to feel that his performances in the years to come were increasingly half-hearted and lacking the intensity and commitment found in his earlier work, especially in his work with Kazan in both Streetcar and On the Waterfront. But who could keep up that kind of emotional intensity certainly had already begun to wear on him as early as his performances of Streetcar on Broadway. And, you know, I mean, the lyric gift, it does not last forever. And so it, inevitably, I think both material and professional success bring with them a kind of contentment, complacency, and laziness, though that would not always be the case with Brando. He would still take occasional risks and do some inspired work in the years to come. But not with his portrayal of Napoleon in 1954 in the film Desiree. According to his co-star Gene Simmons, Brando's contract had forced him to star in the movie. And as a result, he put little effort into the role, claiming he didn't like the script and later dismissed the entire film as superficial and dismal and was especially contemptuous of director Henry Coster, and it would not be the last time he would express disdain for one of his movies. He and Simmons were paired together again in the film adaptation of the musical Guys and Dolls, which would be Brando's first and last musical role. Guys and Dolls is a complete piece of pure technicolor entertainment, and Brando is once again the epitome of good-looking cool, as the Damon Runyon-esque master gambler, Sky Masterson. The film was a huge commercial success. But Brando's relationship with the other male lead in the film, Frank Sinatra, was not so successful. They were diametrical opposites, really, when it came to acting. 
Brando required multiple takes, whereas Frank detested repeating himself. And it's said that Sinatra may have held a grudge because the role of Terry Malloy in On the Waterfront was said to have been his before being taken away and given to Brando. But whatever the truth, Sinatra repeatedly referred to Brando as mumbles, and not always behind his back either. And he more than once declared that he didn't go for Brando, in his words, and what he called, and I quote again, that method crap. Nevertheless, Guys and Dolls was a huge success, as I said, and Brando had really become by, by this time a mainstream Hollywood superstar. And other commercially successful films would soon follow, such as The Tea House of the August Moon and Sayonara, the latter for which he would again be Oscar nominated as Best Actor. That same year as Sayonara, in 1957, Brando married his first wife, the Welsh Indian actress Anna Kashfi, but from whom he would soon separate after this, their son Christian was born and they would divorce in 1960. In The Young Lions in 1958, Brando played a German soldier in World War II whose belief in the cause, quote-unquote, is chipped away piece by piece as the truth of Nazi malevolence reveals itself. Also of note in the film is the performance of Montgomery Cliff, about which I spoke a couple of weeks ago, who, along with John Carfield, was one of the original New York Methods Green Stars, alongside Brando. And after Clift had had his motorcycle accident almost two years earlier, in which his face was badly disfigured, then fixed somewhat with plastic surgery, he became a virtual pariah in Hollywood. But it was Brando, it was Brando who helped insist that Cliff should also star in the film, as the Jewish private who fights against anti-Semitism on the American side of the story. The Young Lions, you know, is a very good example of what would later become Brando's interest to not only choose films aligned with his own social, political leanings, but then rather perversely take the role that most challenged those beliefs. Nevertheless, The Young Lions would be Brando's last hit at the box office for quite some time, though he would still remain a huge star and would on occasion, continue to pursue interesting screen work. Oftentimes, not the most commercial, but um, very, very interesting nonetheless. One of my favorites in this regard is The Fugitive Kind, which he made the following year in 1959 for director Sidney Lumet, and in which he plays a smoldering, snakeskin-jacketed drifter trying to go straight, named... Val Xavier, and I can't help but wonder if he wasn't channeling something of his younger self in this character, who finds work and a solace of a kind in a southern small town variety store run by the married but sexually frustrated Lady Torrance, played by Anna Bagnani, who proves as much a temptation for Brando as the local wild child played by Joanne Woodward. Based on an early Tennessee Williams play, Orpheus Descending, it's all richly over-the-top stuff filled with florid emotional outpourings and repressed sexuality that make for great drama, though it was a commercial and critical failure upon its release. Another very absorbing film from this period is the Western One-Eyed Jacks, which he made in 1961 
and in which he reteamed with Carl Malden, his friend and co-star, from Streetcar and On the Waterfront. Now, biographers speculate that, that this film is as much about Brando's own real-life tortured relationship with his father than was originally meant to be in the screenplay by Sam Peckinpah. Stanley Kubrick had initially been hired to direct the project, but reportedly dropped out after asking Brando during script discussions what he felt the film was really about. Brando replied, it's about $3 million in back taxes. <laughs> so... So when Kubrick left, Brando took over the director's chair himself for the first and only time in his career, it must be said. And yet, despite his mercenary inclinations, the film became a richly detailed and very personal project indeed. And, and maybe because of that um, personality that he invested in the film, it did poorly at the box office. But it certainly has its critical champions today, including a um, recent fine Blu-ray edition from Criterion. The following year, in 1962, Brando signed on for a big-budgeted remake of Mutiny on the Bounty for MGM. But with his star power insistence that the film be a philosophical exploration of how to build a perfect society... Brando locked horns with the producers and was made a scapegoat, I think, for an overrunning budget. Indeed, Mutiny on the Bounty nearly capsized MGM. And while the project had been hampered with delays other than Brando's own behavior, the accusation would dog the actor for years as studios began to fear his growing reputation of being difficult to work with. Critics also began taking note at around this time of his fluctuating weight, which would also follow him the rest of his life. Mutiny on the Bounty did do poorly at the box office and is, along with Cleopatra, one of the films that almost stopped Hollywood dead in its tracks in the early 1960s as it grappled with how to appeal to a younger generation not interested in epic filmmaking or the stars of the 1950s. But perhaps most significantly for Brando personally is that he discovered an island paradise, an atoll really, 60 miles north of Tahiti, while filming Mutiny on the Bounty in 1960. Six years later, he purchased it for $270,000 and lived there with his third wife, his Mutiny co-star, the 20-year-old French Polynesian actress, Charita Terapia, and their two children, for weeks at a time as he escaped what he would have considered the polar opposite of such a paradise, Hollywood itself. Today, it operates as a resort called the Brando. By the way, Brando's second wife was Mexican actress Muvita Castaneda. And his many biographers like to speculate that Brando's so-called doomed romances were a direct consequence of an abandonment complex relating to his mother. The idea here being that rather than wait for the inevitable departure of his wives and girlfriends... Brando would run a sledgehammer through the relationships himself. Lending credence to this idea, Brando himself said somewhat darkly in his memoir, I would probe and test women to find their breaking point, at which they would then tell a lie and show weakness, quote unquote. So all in all, not always a nice guy. In any case, uh, we do know that Brando was the biological father of at least 11 children, plus three more, who were adopted. These same biographers also suggested by the 1960s, Brando had become a victim of his own success, 
increasingly smug, entitled, and hard to work with, and that he mostly lost interest in movies altogether as anything other than a paycheck, or at best as a force for social good. He took up causes instead, among which were Tahiti itself and Native Americans most notably. But throughout the decade, he appeared at demonstrations, marches, and sit-ins, especially regarding civil rights causes, and was a notable presence himself at the 1963 March on Washington, where Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. As a televised forum just after that march, he spoke about how he hoped that it would benefit all minorities. The problem seems to do with hatred, he told viewers in a precise tone. We are all human beings filled with anguish, hatred, and fear. And I think that is what we are addressing here today. Quote, unquote. But Brando's determination to bring such a message to his movies didn't always easily fit in to Hollywood's commercial agenda, of course. The 1960s really were a strange era for him. After the box office bomb of Mutiny on the Bounty, as well as other unsuccessful films that alternated between light entertainment fluff like bedtime stories and who remembers that, as well as Chaplin's The Countess from Hong Kong, and films aligned with Brando's increasing passion for social political causes such as The Ugly American and Jillo Pontecorvo's much more successful, in my eyes, Burn, Brando's Hollywood stock began dropping considerably, to say the least. One of the more interesting films from this time is 1967's Reflections in a Golden Eye, John Huston's sad, creeping murmur of a tale based on the Carson McCullers novel, in which Brando, replacing Montgomery Cliff, who had died prior to the film's production, plays a U.S. major at a Southern Army base during the 1940s, a much tormented figure. Married to a catty Elizabeth Taylor, the sexually ambiguous Brando character here becomes obsessed with a new young male private in his charge. And it's an odd, daring, and even heartbreaking performance dealing in repressed homosexuality for certain, as well as murder and voyeurism. So altogether, not, uh, not always the most a commercially viable of subjects. And uh, so it really was not a box office success, yet uh, very much worth seeing, especially for Brando's incredibly brave and idiosyncratic performance where um, much is left unsaid and must be communicated through more or less clenched and somewhat impassive facial expressions. Martin Scorsese, for one, ha for one, has championed this film, and it has said that the scene where Brando's character talks to himself in the mirror was, in fact, his inspiration suggests that Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle do the same thing in the now famous You Talking to Me scene in Taxi Driver. The following year, in 1968, uh, that very revolutionary year, uh, Brando made the little-seen movie today, Burn, for Gillo Pontecorvo, the Italian filmmaker behind the radical archetypal 60s revolutionary movie, The Battle of Algiers. And he stated in his memoir, Songs My Mother Taught Me, as well as in various interviews, that he thought that this was his best performance as the infamous real-life 19th century mercenary Sir William Walker, who cynically plays both sides against each other during a Caribbean slave revolt against the British. When Brando is on screen in this movie, he is truly on fire and frighteningly good. And what is another example, as in the young lines, of playing the bad guy in opposition to the larger theme of the movie, which is justice for the oppressed? You know, despite being one of the highest paid stars in town, Brando was constantly on the brink 
of bankruptcy. By the mid-60s, his roving eye had left him three families to support. He had legal bills, alimony payments, uh, which had all threatened to swamp him, not to mention his uh, island paradise in the Caribbean. So come the early 70s, excuse me, he was in dire need of a job and a, a big pay one after a run of what someone counted as 19 box office flops in a row. So it might be fair to say that his career was by this time more or less on the scrap heap and that he had not had an unqualified box office hit since The Young Lions in 1958. Step forward, Francis Ford Coppola and The Godfather in 1972. It really revived Brando's career. Paramount studio heads were opposed very much so to casting Brando as Don Vito Corleone due to his supposed difficult reputation and long string of box office flops, certainly. Brando also had one-eyed jacks working against him, a troubled production that had lost a lot of money for Paramount when it was released 10 years earlier. So by 1972, he really was yesterday's news uh, as far as Paramount Pictures president Stanley Jaffe was concerned. Um, and who is quoted as having told an exasperated Coppola, look, as long as I'm president of the studio, Marlon Brando will not be in this picture, and I will no longer allow you to discuss it, quote unquote. So only due to the persistence of the young Coppola did Brando's casting in The Godfather as Don Vito Corleone happen. You know, of course, in the movie, Brando famously puts tissue paper in his cheeks to help make him appear older, as well as extra padding around his waist, and um, also came up with a hoarse sing-song voice for um, his character, Vito Corleone. Um, he really isn't the heart of The Godfather. It's more a film about Al Pacino's Michael, but he did get his second Oscar as Best Actor playing the um, very much glorified mafia boss who, you know, believes in family, was for honor and against the drug trade, etc. And so if The Godfather is less about Brando than it is about Pacino's Michael or the Corleone family in general, the real life Brando does in another way tower over the film as the man who almost single-handedly launched a new approach to screen acting two decades earlier and in doing so became a kind of father figure to the 70s generation of similarly method uh, style actors like Pacino as well as James Caan, John Cazale and Robert Duvall as well as his heir apparent of course Robert De Niro playing the young Vito Corleone in the 1974 sequel to The Godfather. But just as the Academy was prepared to award him that second Oscar, which would, of course, serve to welcome him back into the Hollywood fold, just as an Oscar had done for Ingrid Bergman back in the 1950s, the still radicalized Brando was in no mood to please. For him, there was no such thing as a comeback, just a chance for the studios to cash in and pat themselves on the back. So he boycotted the Oscars in 1973, and in his place, a woman in Native American dress, Sasheen Littlefeather, appeared on stage to refuse that Oscar and also denounce the on-screen depiction of American Indians by Hollywood. So a lot of the good PR that Brando had generated with The Godfather went down the drain after that move. Not that he cared, and really he would 
never have good press again when you think about it. Just negative stuff about enormous weight gain, squandered talent, and of course, the personal tragedy to come. By the way, it was only the second time an actor had ever refused his best actor Oscar. George C. Scott has also refused his a couple of years earlier for the movie Patton. But ascribing his refusal to a dislike of the voting process and of the very idea of competition among artists. You know, launching his career as a stage actor in the 1940s, revolutionizing film acting style in the 1950s, and then adrift for much of the 60s and even 70s, Brando would make, along with The Godfather, two other films in that latter decade that I think are among his most lasting contributions to the art of movies. In Last Tango in Paris in 1973, Brando portrays a recent American widower named Paul who begins an anonymous sexual relationship with a young, betrothed Parisian woman named Jean, played by Maria Schneider. As with previous films, Brando refused to memorize his lines here for many scenes. Instead, he wrote his lines on cue cards and posted them around the set for easy reference, leaving the film's director, Bernardo Bertolucci, with the problem of keeping them out of the picture frame. And the day he was supposed to do full frontal nudity, it was so cold in the Paris apartment where they were shooting that, as he put it in his memoir, and I quote here, my penis shrank to the size of a peanut, end quote. <laughs> in response, Brando said he paced back and forth across the set, hoping for magic quote-unquote. But unfortunately, not all such scenes from the set remain so humorous. The infamous butter scene is now widely regarded as, I think it is fair to say, an act of sexual assault on an apparently unsuspecting young Maria Schneider. Brando's character of Paul in the film was based in part on his own life. I think that much is certain, with much of the dialogue directly biographical in nature, if, you know, thinly disguised. Uh, certainly the film sparked a great deal of mainstream controversy at the time for its very frank and unsentimental depiction of sex. And has as many detractors today um, as it does champions. In interviews with Maria Schneider, as well as with Brando himself, both revealed that they had felt manipulated, tricked at how deeply the director Bernardo Bertolucci had exposed both actors emotionally, spiritually, as well as physically, of course, most directly regarding uh, Maria Schneider herself, and Brando swore he would never allow himself to be this naked, this emotionally exposed ever again. And I think it's fair to say that he never gave all of himself to his work in any future films. In fact, he would only go on to do a few more movies in the more than 30 years of life left to him. When Last Tango was finished, I decided I was never again going to expose myself so emotionally to make a movie, he wrote. I felt I had given too much of my innermost self and didn't want to suffer like that anymore, quote unquote. Nevertheless, the controversial movie was a hit and Brando made the list of top 10 box office stars for the last time in 1973. And he was again nominated for Best Actor, his seventh 
seventh such nomination. The early 70s of The Godfather and Last Tango in Paris are, I think it's fair to say, a second, if brief, peak in Brando's career. But it's also the beginning of the end, really. And almost as, almost as if to mirror that reality, Last Tango in Paris is really about a middle-aged man hitting the wall, falling from power, losing his virility, and approaching death. When you think about it, it's more or less the same journey taken by Vito Corleone in the first Godfather film, and of course, by Brando himself over the rest of his life and career. After Tango, he took a four-year hiatus before appearing in a rather idiosyncratic 1976 Western, The Misery Breaks, alongside Jack Nicholson. After this, I think his last starring role, really, I, I don't, can't think of any others, he was pretty much content with being a highly paid character actor in cameo uh, spots, such as in Superman in 1978 and The Formula in 1980, before taking a nine-year break from motion pictures altogether. He would never hit such heights of stardom again. Meanwhile, his physical beauty sharply declined, and he stopped bothering to whip himself into shape between movies. And then there was the personal tragedy. In May 1990, Brando's son Christian shot dead the boyfriend of his half-sister Cheyenne in the family home. Christian alleged that Cheyenne was being abused by her boyfriend. We know alcohol was most certainly involved, but the tragic irony of the situation would not have been lost on Marlon, I'm sure. Despite his wealth and his fame, family violence was not something he could put behind him. Christian, too, had grown up in turmoil, the pawn in an acrimonious custody struggle between Brando and his first wife, Anna Kashvi. Brando later lamented that his son's fate was also his inheritance. And I quote here, Christian was burdened with emotional disorders and psychological disarray, the same kind of trouble that I had had in life, he said, quote unquote. The same was true of Cheyenne, who, struggling with grief and depression, took her own life five years later. By the late 70s, Brando was no longer famous for creating immortal screen representations of such characters as Terry Malloy and Stanley Kowalski, but, and I remember this well, for taking huge salaries for so-called guest appearances in such Hollywood spectacles as Superman. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, Brando was paid a record $3.7 million, or more than $20 million in inflation-adjusted dollars today, as well as 11.75% of the gross profits for just 13 days' work on that Hollywood spectacular in 1978. And he's only in the movie for just a few minutes. That was considered at the time a kind of scandalized Hollywood excess, more significant for many than the, than the movie itself. Probably none of whom would have foreseen such an industry taken over by such salaries and a fantasy genre of films of which Superman is certainly among the first. Of much greater interest, at least in retrospect, uh, and what is arguably, well, really not that arguably, his last important film is Apocalypse Now, which was released at the end of 1979. 
overweight, underprepared, and insanely brilliant, it must be said, playing Colonel Kurtz, a highly decorated U.S. Army Special Forces officer who goes renegade, running his own jungle army on the border of Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Based on the Joseph Conrad novel, Heart of Darkness, about a man hired to find the wayward Kurtz and terminate his command, Brando was supposed to show up for one week of work, physically fit and having read the Conrad novel. Instead, he showed up heavier than he had ever been and had not turned a page of the famous book. Coppola's answer was to dress Brando in black, film him in almost perpetual darkness, as well as shadows, and hire a double for times he needed to see a fuller, more imposing body, body shot. He and Brando then proceeded to explore what would then happen when Martin Sheen's Captain Willard finally catches up with Kurtz. But uh, during the production, one week turned into two, which turned into six, with the meter running. And the result was, however self-indulgent, still impossibly brilliant. While... Only appearing in less than 12 minutes of screen time near the end of the movie, Brando's Colonel Kurtz hangs over the entire three-hour epic, like, in the words of one writer about the film, a giant, humid specter of doom. Quote, unquote. After Apocalypse Now, Brando did not do many new films, and those he made were, quite frankly, not very good, with a couple of exceptions, like A Dry White Season, in 1989, for which he received his last Oscar nomination as Best Supporting Actor, appropriately enough, since those were the only roles that he was doing. And almost entirely for the paycheck, it must be said. Marlon Brando died in 2004, with discussion about him in his last two decades or more, mostly regarding his squandered talent. You know, of being a troubled recluse, at least allegedly, as well as a person supposedly wrestling with demons and hell-bent on self-destruction through overeating. And very much an aberration of his former youthful beauty, in comparison with which he was constantly denigrated. So unfairly. But with time, I think all of that has or will soon disappear, leaving just the posterity of his recorded work with so many great even iconic performances in such wonderful films as A Streetcar Named Desire, Julius Caesar on the Waterfront, The Fugitive Kind The Godfather, Apocalypse Now and so many more you know Brando once said that what he did was all about surprising people you never let the audience know how it's going to come out he said Hit him, knock him over, be surprising, figure out a way to do it that has never been done before. And you know, at his best, that was his approach in those movies of the early 50s and early 70s. And that's why I think his best performances will endure. As long as we have movies, we will be watching Marlon Brando. He represented something for people tired of convention and cliche, something ferocious and unpredictable, completely interior and totally invigorated. And that's precisely what was best about his acting style. 
Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. Forgive me if this one ran a little bit long, but I hope you've um, stuck with it and enjoyed this talk about the life and career of Marlon Brando. I also invite you to join me next week for more movie talk, uh, hopefully a little more concise. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at org, or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, and bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening today. My name is Daryl Levine. We launched this uh, podcast and uh, telephone broadcasting service at the end of March 2020. Of course, we had uh, closed our doors at that point. Uh, people could not come anymore to the library to uh, listen to interesting talks and so on. And this was a way of getting the content to you. One of the things that we did was set up a telephone number that people could call into every day at 2 p.m. so they could listen to this if they either didn't have a computer or maybe they weren't comfortable using a computer. Uh, and of course, we also later distributed this show through the regular podcast channels that people uh, who listen to podcasts are familiar with. And maybe that's how you're listening to us today. So thanks for listening. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you soon.